Good morning, everyone. My name's Kevin Tallickson, um, so I'll be here today. Greg was at the pastor's conference this week. Obviously, he's here, but um, wanted to give him time. He wanted to take time to really be with the Lord there. Um, so we'll be taking a week off from Acts. Um, I'm really excited for what the Lord will do today um, and what he has for us. And the topic today uh, is going to be, Who is Jesus? Part one. Um, I'll be teaching, Lord willing, again later uh, in June that we'll cover that as well. But before we go into it, um, let's pray. And uh, I encourage you, as I'm praying, don't just listen to me praying. Like, pray for yourselves. Pray for me. Um, this is We're praying together here as well. So I encourage you to be with us in prayer. Lord, we thank you that we can um, have another day. Lord, thank you that you have brought us here. Um, Lord, not by mistake, Lord, but for a reason that you gave us life today. You're, uh, for a reason you've um, allowed us to join here in person or online. Um, Lord, and we trust that you um, have a plan and a purpose for this time to reveal yourself to us, Lord, because that is your desire that all men and women would know you, God. So we pray that you would draw us deeper um, into knowledge of who you are, God, and that you would change us this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would give me the words to speak, um, that you would cause us to, without a doubt, experience your presence this morning, we pray. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. So the topic for today really stems from a conversation in Princeton that I had around three to four weeks ago as I was doing street evangelism. And this conversation started with the question, what percentage of people are good? People love answering that question because they like to tell who's good and who's bad and, and things like that. It's fun. Um, but one, one conversation that I had with a middle-aged woman, um, it was a short conversation, but she made the statement that she could never believe in my Jesus, or in your Jesus, if you will, uh, Kevin's Jesus. And, and it truly broke my heart because she thought everyone had good in them, and she's like, how dare you say anything else? And, and, but it really made me think, who is the Jesus that I'm telling you about? Who is the Jesus that I believe? Who is the Jesus that I follow? And those few days after that really got me thinking of, who is this Jesus? Am I presenting the correct Jesus? So it was really good for me to consider that. And I want to embark on that journey with you all of who is Jesus and the source being the scriptures, what we know is true for all eternity. Um, so we're going to be going through the book of John. It's really almost an overview of the book of John that we'll be going through today and, and the next time I teach. And it's based on the I am's of Jesus. Some of you may be familiar with those. Uh, we're going to be covering in total eight I am's of Jesus, um, but only four today as the first part. There's other I am's of Jesus that we could cover, and you could say, oh, we didn't cover that one. But we're going to cover the eight that I think are, are pretty conclusive in who Jesus is according to the book of John. And, and some of you might be saying, Kevin, I already know who Jesus is, and I've been following him for years and or decades. And you may be tempted to check out for the next 40 minutes or however long it is. Uh, but I think it can be very easy for us as Christians to get caught up in just the tradition of church. Uh, it's easy for us to get comfortable in the following of Jesus because we've been doing the same thing for years. Um, or even taking biases of what we grew up as, as this is what we were told who Jesus was, but you've never really thought about it. Um, you can also, it's easy for us to get caught up in doing so much for the Lord and serving him, which is good and we need to do those things. But we need to sometimes stay, take a step back. We can also get caught up in, in the depths of doctrine, of pre-trib, post-trib, and all these things that we should have conversations about, but 
we have to come back to the basics sometimes of who is this Jesus. And oftentimes we forget our first love, which is Christ. So let us consider together who Jesus is. And I believe God will use this time uh, to grow us in knowledge, but also will change our lives as we encounter him um, today. Um, so we're going to go through the eight I am's, as I mentioned. And in each section, I'm not going to be going through because it's the same every time. There's the I am and then blank that Jesus uses. And the word for I am um, is ego I me. Um, it, it literally means to I exist. So I am, I, I uh, exist as this. Um, some may say um, that it's considered Jesus' claim to deity for every I am of Christ, but that's not necessarily the case. There is one I am that we're going to be covering today that clearly points to Jesus claiming that he is God, that he is deity. Um, so really, the I am's of John are generally are Jesus' proclamation of his own character and who he is, his attributes, and so forth. And many times throughout the Gospels, even in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, people ask who Jesus is. So this is not just exclusive to the book of John. I think it is a question through the Gospels that the Gospel writers write, this is who Jesus is. They're presenting them um, who he is. And so within each of these I am's, I'm going to be covering who is God, like what are his attributes based on this I am statement, and then also the implication to us in our daily lives. So I think, I pray that it will not be just, oh, that's nice, that's who Jesus is, but that it will truly change us in how we live. Um, so the first one, if you could turn with me, or it'll be up on the screen as well, we're going to start in John chapter 6 for the first I am statement. So con some context here because we're picking up in the middle um, of John. So people just experienced the feeding of the 5,000, which many of you know about that miracle of the large crowds that Jesus fed. Um, and in verse 26 of John chapter 6, Jesus exposed the majority of the people's motives that were following him, which was to eat their fill and loaves. They just wanted that really good bread and fish that Jesus made. And so he's exposing their motives of longing for their temporal comforts rather than really truly following Jesus. And we'll get to that, but I think it might sound familiar in some of our lives at times. But even after the comment of Jesus exposing their motives, the people said, what sign will you give so that they could believe him? So they wanted more signs, a.k.a. more food. And they gave the suggestion of something like manna that was given to the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert. That was an Old Testament story where God provided manna every day uh, for the people to eat so that they could have their satisfaction, their physical needs met. And so let's pick up for, for this state, first statement in John chapter 6, verse 32 through 35. I'll read it here. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus first points the gift of manna to God that was in the Old Testament, not to Moses, but truly from God, that God himself brought that food that the Israelites so knew in their history, that that, that gift is truly from God, as we know every gift is truly from God. But highlighting that there is a true bread that is different than the manna and the physical bread that they're longing for and that they're talking about. This bread, he says in verse 33, is a person 
And the purpose of this true bread is to give life. A person who gives life to the world, the ba- basically the people are saying, sign me up. I want that. I want food that satisfies me. But here it gets interesting. Jesus then claims to be this true bread. And if some random person just said, I am bread, you'd be kind of weirded out, right? <laughs> At least I would be. Um, and so uh, in talking to human feelings and cravings, um, I think we've all felt hunger. So, so he's relating to something that we've all experienced. And I feel like I have a new understanding of hunger having a new baby girl. Because I can tell you, if she doesn't get her milk, she starts like shaking and convulsing. And it's like, it gets wild. Sometimes I think Jesus might be like, I am the bread of milk to a baby because that's what they know too, (laughs) that what satisfies them. So this cravings that we've all satisfied, the feeling of emptiness, the pain of wanting more, Jesus is saying this will be taken away. This is a major claim and maybe confusing at first for someone who's looking at this of like, how does a person give me satisfaction for my hunger, for my thirst? However, Jesus is going to explain in verse 40 and we'll put it up on the screen, that it's a, he's going in a different direction than what they're thinking about. It says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. So this bread that Jesus is talking about is not the temporal bread that people, and even us at times, crave for. It's rather it's resulting in eternal life. And it says when we eat of this, when we believe in the Son, when we believe in Jesus, it results in eternal life. And if we think about this, we often are like the people in this scene, that we are craving for the things that give us comfort, that give us pleasure. We're trying to build ourselves up in this world. What can we do to get ahead in society? What can we do to get to the next step? But Jesus is pointing to something way greater than anything that we could long for. He's pointing to something that has a greater result, which is eternal life. And it may be hard in the process of this eating of the bread, this this partaking in Jesus, but the result is so worth it. And so let's go on to read verse 48 to 52 to conclude this section. It says this, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus again makes the claim, I am the bread. For the fourth time, he keeps proclaiming it because it's a weird claim to make. But at the end of verse 51, it says, The bread that I will give is my flesh. And we know now, after Jesus' death and resurrection, that Jesus truly is giving us his flesh. He literally is dying on our behalf so that we may be satisfied and so that the wrath of God would be satisfied on, uh, on Jesus instead of us so that we can have eternal life. And so this this bread that he is offering is so much greater than what the people were really wanting. And it turns out in verse 66 that many of the disciples actually left. Essentially, all of the disciples except the 12 left because they said this is too hard to understand. This is too hard to follow. This is too weird. This is too radical from what we are used to. 
And so what does this statement of I am the bread of life tell us about Jesus and his character? I would say firstly that he was sent by God himself. So as we talked about that bread is from God, that Jesus is claiming that I am from God, that God himself sent me on a mission here, and that mission is to be the bread. And so he's making a statement that he's not a prophet, he's not just some random person, that he is directly from and sent by God himself. He also, imply, it implies too that he is the only source for eternal life. And so eating is essential for every human, and so is eating of this bread specifically for eternal life. There is no rice for eternal life. There is no something else for eternal life. It is Christ alone for eternal life. So he's making the exclusive claim that Jesus is the bread of life alone. And just as we need bread to live our days in this earth, we need the bread of Jesus. We need Jesus himself to have eternal life. And then thirdly, this shows about himself is that he is giving of himself. He became food for someone else. That's radical, if I ever knew anything that was radical. That he's literally giving his life so that we can be eating of him, eating of his flesh, so that we can have that food. And so this included dying on our behalf, and it's radical giving that Jesus offers. Jesus is not just mandating something for us to do that he hasn't done already himself. And I love that about God, that he's not telling us to do something rather than just doing it himself and showing, exemplifying what it looks like to give of ourselves, even to the point of death. So what are the implications for us? Because that's all well and good. Some of you may be like, yeah, I understand that, Kevin. But the implications for us that Jesus is the true satisfaction in our life, this life, and also eternal life. This will change in how we live. This will change our desires and our longings. And in the same way, we cannot live without bread or eating or drinking. We cannot live without Jesus. And I know that's not very specific, but just think of what our desires and our longings are. What are our thoughts throughout the day? What do we think about most? And I would say in many cases in our culture, we, we think about the here and now, what we're going to do next, what, how to do this project or this investment or whatever it might be our longings get focused on this world rather than the bread of life second implication for us is that following jesus will be hard as it said in verse 66 that people left jesus and even in some cases following jesus will not make sense you're like jesus why are you doing this why are you doing this through me why are you having me do this This is weird. I don't know what's going to come as a result of this. It's going to cause us fear. But God longs that we would trust him, and that includes in the unknown times, in the weird times where Jesus says, I am bread. So yes, things will not be easy. Things will be confusing. But Jesus, in this passage of I am the bread of life, it may be confusing, but I am the only source. I am the only option. And the disciples who did stay, they later on said, Where else can we go? You have the keys to eternal life. And I pray that that is the implication of Jesus being the bread of life. Where else do we go? He is the only source of our satisfaction. All right, so let's go on to the next I am statement. In John chapter 8, if you want to turn there. 
So in this context, a little bit, Jesus was celebrating the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. Um, that was celebrated in the Old Testament. You can go into a great study on that. It's awesome. Um, and it goes back to chapter 7 in John when Jesus was celebrating the Feast of Booths and also was teaching at some point in the middle part of the celebration. And there was a story just before at the end of chapter 7 that was in between the teaching. But I really believe this uh, chapter 8 verse 12 is a continuation of the teaching of the Feast of Booths. And within the Feast of Booths, it's a time to remember the wilderness journey that the Israelites take, took on the way to the Promised Land. The people would live in temporary structures for five days to celebrate. And one main part of the ceremonies was light or candles in the night to represent the pillar of fire that God had sent to guide the people of Israel. So here Jesus resumes his teaching to the crowds in verse 12 and 13. So let's read that and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So it says this, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. So Jesus, in the context of the celebration of the Feast of Booze, claimed to be the light of the world. And this has some major implications of who Jesus is and his character. The first being, in the same role of God leading Israel through the desert, Jesus leads his people even through the darkest night. So that's his claim, is I am exemplifying what happened here in, in your history to what I can do now. And so Exodus 13, 21 says this about when they were being led through the wilderness. It says, the, and the Lord went before them by day in a cloud, pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And so Jesus is saying here, just like the time in the wilderness, that when they could not see anything, they had no idea where they're going to go, that Jesus is saying that he will lead us. Even when we do not know where we are going, even when what is before us is unknown or scary, he is going before us. He is that beacon of life, that light that cannot be darkened. And remember that these people knew about the pillar of fire. These people were historians. They knew about how God led them from Egypt into the promised land. They knew about the pillar of fire. They celebrated it every year at the Feast of Booths. And so by Jesus claiming that I am the light is completely radical. What they've been celebrating all these years, Jesus is saying, Really, I am the one to be celebrated. I am this light that will lead you. The next thing about Jesus' character and attributes, it says here, is Jesus is the Messiah as prophesied in the Old Testament. The religious leaders knew their Old Testaments. They knew their prophecies of the Messiah, but oftentimes were blinded to it or were expecting a different type of Messiah. But here, Jesus is saying he is the sent one of God to save the world. One example of this, and there's multiple prophecies of a light that will come. Isaiah 42, 6 through 7 says this. It should be up on the screen as well. And says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that, that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And so... 
Jesus is saying, I am this light for the nations. I am the light. And there's many other prophecies in the Old Testament showing Jesus is the Messiah, the sent one for the people of Israel and for the whole world. And many people doubt the validity of the Old Testament or consider it unimportant. But this is a part of the plan and the story of God. This cannot be ignored and also can strengthen our faith in God that he is 100% faithful to his word and to his promises. And so it shows that about Jesus, that something that is prophesied hundreds, thousands of years will come true exactly how God has, has designed it. And Jesus is an example, claiming to be the light of the world. I am, he is saying, I am a result of God's prophecies. I'm a result of God's promises. I am faithful. And what a beautiful thing that we have and we can hold on to, that God is faithful to his promises. The next thing it says, I would say it implies about his character and his attributes and what he's able to do is that Jesus is able to bring us from darkness to light, as it says here in John chapter um, 8. Jesus has the authority and the power to bring us from evil, both in ourselves and around us, and also from ultimate destruction, eternal judgment in hell, into the light of salvation and purity and holiness and relationship with God himself. We know that the fulfillment of this light that Jesus is talking about is the salvation that God gives to us through the death and resurrection of Christ. So Jesus is also prophesying that I am going to satisfy the, the, the authority that is needed from darkness to light. And 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says this to back this point up. It says, but you, being us as believers, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And notice that it says here that it's him who called you out of darkness into light. We don't just run our way out of darkness and run to light. Christ himself alone can bring us from darkness to light. And dark and light is used throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament. So these people knew what going from dark to light means. And so Jesus claiming that I alone can bring you into, from darkness to light is shocking for the people that are listening. That, that it's not by works, that it's not by the law, but that it is through Christ himself that can bring from darkness to light. And so what are the implications for us? First and foremost, that Jesus can save us from our sin and darkness. We have all messed up. We have all rebelled against God. We have spent time in the darkness at one point or another, and maybe even still today. Sin and evil, and even on the path to eternal judgment, but God, but God can and will bring us into the light. So the question is, are you living in darkness? God is the only one that can bring you into the light. Are you living in the light submitted to God? Praise God alone because he is the only reason for that. And so many times we can live in the light and be doing good for the Lord and we can start to have that pride. We can start to be like, at least I'm not like that or I'm better than those people over there. But again, it's a reminder that Jesus alone can not only save us from our sin and darkness and bring us into light, but he, he alone can keep us in that light. 
The next is that God can lead us in the darkest of times, even in our life as believers. How many of us have gone through dark times in your life that you can point back to say that was a dark season? Whether it was due to your sin or rebellion or whether it was due to your circumstances. Dark thoughts or dark unknown seasons of life, times where you are alone. How many of us have, who have rebelled against God and not wanting to do anything in obedience to Christ? God is there even in those seasons, in the night, in the darkest of nights, in the desert, shining like a light. Just like he led the Israelites through the desert where there was no, there was, there, there was unknown, there was darkness, there was death. He was a light there still. A room can be very dark, but even the smallest light will push that darkness away. There is hope and Jesus never stops shining. Will you turn to that light? Will you follow him? And I do believe that even as believers, we go through desert seasons. We go through dark seasons of unknown and fear. And Jesus alone is still in, has, still shining as a light in the darkest times, even as a believer, when things get tough. And then lastly, implication, last implication is that we can walk in the light. A lot of times as believers, we can get just down of, I keep sinning, I, I repented of it last week and I do it again. But we can truly walk in the light. John 5, verse 8 and 9, uh, 9 says this, for at one, first John 5, 8, 9, sorry. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as true children of light. For the fruit of light is, around, is found in all that is good and right and true. So it says, you were at one time darkness, but now you are light in the Lord with Christ inside of you. That we can have confidence that we can not only be saved and forgiven for our past, but we can now walk in the confidence that the light of Christ is in us. Our lives will change. And the actions and the change of our, our, our lives, our actions, our words, our thoughts, our deeds, is a result or a proof of following Jesus. So we can have confidence that we can truly walk in the light because he is the light of the world. So let's go to the next I am. It's in John chapter 8 again. Later in the chapter, um, some can, do not consider this as a traditional I am statement of Christ. If you Google the I am statement of Christ, it's probably not there. Um, it looks differently, but I believe that covering this one is hugely important and huge implications on our lives and shows an important attribute of Jesus. So let's read the passage. Um, and, and just as a little context, Jesus is going back and forth with the people, the Jewish people, after his light of the world statement, because obviously they didn't love it. Um, and they're going back and forth what truth is, what does acting in righteousness look like. They've been talking about Abraham, who's the father of Israel, and the faith that you can read about in Genesis, his whole story. He was hugely respected by the Jewish people, of course. And so Jesus made some, made some controversial statements in regards to Abraham uh, that we'll read here. So let's read John chapter 8, 51 through 59 to get the full context of the, the passage. So it says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. 
It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So as you can see here, I mean, they called him a demon and all these things. Uh, Jesus, the Jewish people were offended by these statements that Jesus said of um, the word of God. Uh, those who would not do the word of God um, would not die because that was disparaging to Abraham. Um, we know Abraham from Hebrews chapter 11 that his faith made, declared him righteous. And so it's, we're not bashing Abraham. Jesus wasn't bashing Abraham, but he was, Jesus was talking about the, your understanding of just doing things by work and, and almost worshiping Abraham is misplaced. And so Jesus then referenced to the people that he had seen Abraham and knew what he was feeling. He was glad which made the people mock Jesus that he is not even 50 years old. So how, do you, how were you alive hundreds of years before? But in verse 58, it got escalated even further. It was the final straw for the Jewish people, because obviously we see that they were trying to stone Jesus. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. This is a major statement for two reasons. Firstly, it is Jesus saying that he existed before Abraham, which in the physical mind sounds ridiculous, that a human would be alive that far back. Secondly, this word I am, ego, I, me, what I said before, is referring to the direct name of God in this context. At the burning bush, when God appeared to Moses, it says the following in Exodus 3, verse 14, just one verse. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so Jesus used this language, and in the, the current language of the day, it was a clear reference to this well-known name of God from Exodus. And so these people that Jesus was making this claim to fully knew that when Jesus made this statement of I am, that he was claiming deity, that he was saying that I am God. And the people of Israel considered this claim as pure blasphemy, which is why in verse 59, um, the people picked up stones to throw at him. And so what does this show about Jesus' character? It's a disputed fact in our culture that Jesus is fully human. Uh, people can't dispute that aspect, but that he's also fully God. So Jesus is fully human, as the people saw, but also fully God. And it's a disputed fact in our culture that people can't really deny the fact that Jesus existed historically. There's tons of um, references and reasons why we can believe that. But they dispute the fact that Jesus is God. Whether Jesus is God or not will truly change everything we believe. The implications are massive. But Jesus claimed here that he was God. And that's the, other thing, other, the second one of Jesus and his character, that Jesus did indeed claim to be God. Some religions, and, and I would say most prominently Islam, will say that Jesus never claimed to be God directly. Uh, and I would say that this verse that we just read is one of the most clear examples. 
Islam respects the scripture and is even listed in the Quran as, as referencing our scripture, but they doubt the accuracy and, and some translations. And they, of course, doubt our view of Jesus, which we believe he is God, that he died, he rose again, he came to this earth, God himself. And we will not go into the depths of how we interact with Muslims, but, but from this passage, we can clearly show that Jesus did indeed claim to be God. Because why else would they start to stone him? He was saying that I am God. I am the one that the Jewish people have worshipped and followed, though imperfectly, for their entire existence, that Jesus claimed to be God. And the third implication of, of Jesus' character is Jesus existed eternally before all things. So Jesus existed before Abraham, but we know from other scriptures as well that Jesus existed from the beginning and even created all things. John chapter 1 is one example right here. John 1, 1 through 3. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So John chapter 1, you can turn to Colossians. There's plenty of references where Jesus not only existed from the beginning, but he is actually the creator God. And so Jesus is claiming here again that he existed eternally before all things. So what does this mean for us? Firstly, Jesus is God, and this will change our view of him. Jesus is not someone just to be like or listen to some of his teachings. He's not just a famous person, but rather the reason for life itself, the author of life itself, the author of truth. He's not a side hub, hobby or something we do to feel good on Sundays. And we can't say that we agree with Jesus partially. It is either all or none. He is God, so we either believe him or we reject him. And so the way we look at scripture even will change from a history book if he was just a nice person or a philosopher at the time or a nice story to words directly from God. And also Jesus being God, becoming a baby on this earth, being beaten and killed on our behalf will give us new meaning compared to him just being a nice person. And so the view of Jesus will radically change if we go from a nice person, a nice philosopher, he says good things in the Beatitudes of being nice to people, to if he's God, that is going to radically change our view of God. And on that note, if Jesus is God, this will change also our actions. So since Jesus is God, as we know, it is, one, it is the one who we submit to. One who causes us to tremble, because he's not just a teacher. A teacher doesn't cause us to tremble, but a God does. One who we worship. We don't worship teachers. We worship God. One who we serve. If Jesus was just a philosopher or a good person, we can pick and choose what we believe and act upon. However, when Jesus is God, these are our marching orders. That we simply submit to him, believe it, and we follow it. Though imperfectly, our view of God, of Jesus being God, is critical to the belief in Christ. And, and there's another passage in John that we won't go into. It says that if you do not believe that I am he, that you will die in your sins. And that's clearly referencing that if you do not believe that Jesus is God, then we will die in our sins. So this is not a side doctrine. 
but Jesus being God is a central doctrine of the faith of Christ. It has huge implications. So Jesus is God. He is the great I am. And then lastly, we're going to go into the last I am statement today. We're going to go to John chapter 11. I know we skipped the ones in John 10, but we're going to cover those next time, Lord willing. So John chapter 11, uh, it says in verse 25, but we're going to give some context. So in this um, passage, a good friend of Jesus, Lazarus, got sick and he died. Jesus took his time to get there when he heard that he was sick. Um, and we'll pick up in John chapter 11, verse 17 through 27 to give you the context of this well-known passage, but I think it's important that we zero in on what Jesus is saying about himself. It says this in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. So Martha here was upset, somewhat understandably so, that Jesus did not come earlier because she knew, she had faith, that Jesus could hear, heal Lazarus from his illness. She still had faith not only in Jesus, but God, as she knew that Lazarus would be raised up in the day of the Lord in the last day in the future. However, Jesus here reveals more of who he is to Mary. Mary was talking about a future time and an event that was to come. But Jesus is redirecting and revealing that the time is actually here because Jesus is here. So it shows here a few things about Jesus and his character that Jesus, God, is the center of our longings. That often people, oftentimes people long for a day that God will resurrect and give life. Jesus is now redirecting this longing to God himself. We do long for a day, and it is good. So I'm not saying don't long for the day of the Lord for Jesus' return. But ultimately, we should have a longing for God himself to come. And what does this resurrection bring? What does Jesus bring as the resurrection? What are the results of this true life? It's hope, it's joy, it's excitement, it's rejuvenation that God gives us. And this all comes through God himself, not just the results of what God does, being the resurrection. It also shows about Jesus and his character that Jesus has power over all things, including death. Revelations 21.4 says this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So Jesus is claiming here that he is the resurrection and the life, and he has power over all things, including death itself. And there is nothing that Jesus cannot do, nothing that is more powerful than him. Humans throughout history have sought to defeat death, the final great enemy, if you will. And as we have seen even in the last 15 months, that the fear of death is at the forefront 
of people's mind. And Jesus here shows that he is greater than that, that death, that fear that we might have. So then what does this imply for us that he is the resurrection and the life? And I think firstly that we long for Jesus and God, not just what he can give us. So often we can long for what God gives us, the gifts, the peace, the healing, the hope, uh, a new body in heaven, etc. Those are good things, and God will give those. But Jesus again redirects us to long for him. We long for the giver rather than the gifts. And I personally long for the day that I don't have diabetes. I, I know most of us have conditions, physical, emotional, circumstantial, that we just can't wait for Jesus to return. And for, for it to be the day of the Lord where we celebrate and worship with him. But again, we, we need to put that in context of Jesus being the center of our longing and our desires. And yes, he will bring about that day where there's no more death, no more crying, no more tears. He will bring the healing even on earth. He, he will do these things on our behalf for his glory. But again, we need to be careful to not long for the gifts rather than the giver. Another implication is that we can have no fear, even death. And I'm not trying to say to just be more courageous or be more bold in our flesh because that doesn't come naturally to most of us. Even the most courageous of us, the most bold that we would say that person's bold. If you ask them, I would say almost every time that they will say I'm scared in one time or another. But the, 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 Confidence and boldness and courage that God is longing to give us only comes from in the presence of Jesus. Amen. And as we come into the presence of Jesus and we ask him and we pray with him and we worship him, the only reaction that we can have is to be bold, to proclaim him, to represent him well, fearing nothing but a fear of God himself. And so when, when the culture is being scared and fearful, we should stand out like a light on a hill that we have no fear. And I would say, in some cases, we are guilty of this. That we have fear that we should not have fear of. So I pray that we would all have this boldness that only comes from his presence. And I, and I ask that you think about when you are worshiping the Lord or praying or in his word, are you scared? I'd say in a lot of cases, if you're truly in the presence of God, God gives us this boldness. And in the book of Acts, we just read a couple weeks ago, that when the people prayed, God shook the building and gave boldness not fear. And because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, we can have boldness for him. And then last implication of Jesus being the resurrection and the life is that we can long for Jesus' return. And I know I just said to not long for just a day in our event, but I do think that we should, according to scripture, long for Jesus' full return, for full glorification and relationship with God himself. If he truly gives us life, if he truly gives us resurrection, what can this world actually offer us? It can offer maybe temporary pleasures, but truly, what can it offer compared to God himself? We need to redirect our longings to Jesus himself, and we long for that day when Jesus fully reveals himself to us, and we are in full glorification and relationship with him. And so... Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And we covered these four I am statements. And I know we covered a lot of things, a lot of different comments. And, and I pray that some of these revealed something new about Jesus or reiterated or encouraged you. 
that as Jesus claims to be, that Jesus is the bread of life, that Jesus is the light of the world, that Jesus is the I am, the great I am, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that God would reveal in your heart this week of more of who he is, not in a knowledge sense only, but also in experiential, that God will show these attributes, these characters of God to you this week. And so in late June, Lord willing, and if Jesus doesn't return, then we will cover four other I am's of Jesus in the book of John. So we'll continue. But in the meantime, and, and after this morning, I pray that all of us would genuinely consider the question, who is Jesus? Who is this that I believe and put my entire trust in? Let's ask the simple question and let us continue on the journey together, not considering what we prefer Jesus to be, but asking who he truly is. And he is faithful to reveal himself to us. And for those who really never considered before who Jesus is, but wants to start, I would love to talk to you, and I know many here would as well. The journey of knowing and following Jesus is not an individual endeavor. It is meant to be done together. Join us as we know that Jesus will reveal himself to us. And I would say, at the end of our journey of knowing Jesus, what will be the results? And we know that we'll be in heaven, we'll, we'll be with him forever in glorified, glorified bodies and worshiping God. But I, I think what's the result of knowing Jesus? We're going to find that Jesus is worthy of following and giving our life to. That we'll find that Jesus is radically different than this world. We'll find that Jesus is enough and satisfies every longing that we could ever have. And we will find also that Jesus is worth longing for and being with for all eternity. That it far outweighs any pleasures, any things that we can do or experience on this life. That Jesus alone is worthy of living an eternity for and with um, on this earth and on to eternity. So let's pray together. Lord God, I just can't help but think, who are we to even consider who you are in all of your holiness and, and perfection compared to us as lowly people? Lord, but I thank you that you not only came to us to reveal yourself to us and to pay for our sins and to rise again, defeating death and all things, but Lord, but that you're here today revealing yourself to us. Lord, that you're pursuing us. You're not just waiting for us to come, Lord, that you're pursuing us. And I believe that you're doing that to many of us in this room, Lord. And I pray that you would work in our hearts to soften it, to take down any walls of our mind or our heart that are causing restrictions to you entering in, Lord. And we pray that you would just reveal yourself in a, in a deeper way today. Lord, we pray that knowing you would not just be a head thing, but that you would... Uh, transform our hearts from the inside out, Lord, and that we would be a different people this week. Lord, in, in a culture of temporal desires, a culture of fear, a culture of just feeding our, our bodies, Lord, I pray that you would make us stand out and that we would be bold in proclaiming who you are, Jesus. We pray that you would work in, in any of our hearts, whether it be conviction of sin, whether it be just doubt, whether it be disappointment or discouragement or whether it's a dark time that we're living in personally, Lord, that you would shine your light right now, even as we close in worship, God. Um, we know that you are faithful to reveal yourself. You're faithful to all of your promises. Um, 
in your word. And we thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.